Good Monday. This is Ozarks at Large for September 12, 2022. I'm Kyle Callums. This is 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Ahead this hour, we dig into archives from the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History with Randy Dixon to hear how climate change was reported more than 20 years ago and how that reporting compares to what we know now. We'll kick off this week with a big gift announced Friday. The University of Arkansas Fort Smith recently received the largest single monetary gift in the school's 94-year history. Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth was at the university for the announcement last Friday, and he brings us this report. The University of Arkansas Fort Smith has been awarded nearly $19 million from the Windgate Foundation, the largest single gift the school has ever received. UAFS Chancellor Teresa Riley announced the award during a meeting with the Fort Smith Rotary Club on Friday, where she invited the school's cheerleading squad, along with mascot Numa the Lion, to the stage to reveal the total amount of the award. Are you ready? Okay. Here we go. We're going to make our announcement of the largest gift in the history of the University of Arkansas Fort Smith. Let's go! The $18,774,387 donation will go to fund the university's nursing and visual arts programs, respectively. Antonio Dean Cantu, dean of the university's College of Health, Education, and Human Sciences, says the $9.9 million set aside for the nursing program will go to addressing a shortage of nurses that area hospitals have seen because of the COVID-19 pandemic. This really was something that was born out of the need uh, that we see nationwide uh, to address the nursing shortage. And so it was uh, a real collaborative and uh, community-based uh, uh, proposal, if you will, because we, we uh, solicited uh, insight and, uh, from our community partners and to, to uh, address fully their need. Uh, and then we looked internally uh, at our School of Nursing and uh, our capacity to, to make sure that those would be uh, ways in which we could help to address the, uh, the critical nursing shortage we see here in the River Valley is also uh, statewide and, and nationally. Paula Julian, Executive Director of the University's School of Nursing, says hospitals in the River Valley need at least double the number of nurses they have now. The pandemic, you know, has, has shown us that we need nurses at all levels, you know, from um, LPN all the way through baccalaureate and beyond. She says the school has seen more interest from people seeking a nursing degree in the last two years and currently has around 200 students enrolled in the program. The money for the nursing program will go to help pay competitive salaries for more than 20 new faculty members and to develop two new degree plans by 2025, the Associate Degree of Nursing and the RN to BSN Pathway. Julian says the school will also offer more flexible classes, including nights and weekends, and expand other programs like the school's simulation clinic. And that's the environment actually on campus within our building where students learn in what we have designated as a safe environment. So they have the opportunity to, to through simulation, to provide the necessary care to patients with specific health problems in an environment where they can make mistakes first. Chancellor Riley says the Wingate gift is a vital investment in the overall health and wellness of Fort Smith and the River Valley. It is an incredible opportunity for us to meet the two greatest needs of any society. We need to have great health care and we already produce great healthcare professionals out of our nursing program. This will allow us to produce more of them. It, we also know that quality of life anywhere that you live is a critical element of why people move to a new town or community. And we are able to produce some of the best artists, both in studio art and in graphic design, to support businesses and community investment and entertainment. So ultimately, we have two of the best pillars of society happening already at the university. This amazing gift is showing the stewardship of this institution in those areas and expecting, demanding an expansion of those two. 
For the remaining $8.8 million reserved for the university's art and design program, the bulk of that gift will go toward construction of the new Windgate building, which is expected to begin next year, with the tentative grant opening in late 2024. Katie Waugh, head of the Art and Design Department at UAFS, says the funding will also help the school expand into new disciplines, including ceramics, digital fabrication, and book arts. From our perspective, of course, we're going to be offering a wider curricular range, and so that will speak to more students, and and particularly looking at growing our studio art offerings, which have been robust as we've developed them in the past and will continue to grow in their, their scope. So we're hoping to see that kind of additional needs are met, and I'm just truly grateful that we'll be able to offer a broader scope to those students, whether they've chosen to come here for art or for other reasons. And, and looking at kind of broader enrollment trends, we are in a position where we're offering, as Chancellor Riley has mentioned earlier, an amazing value to our students. And, and this just increases that value uh, in, in quite a significant way. She says the art and design program currently has around 140 degree-seeking students. Prior to the gift, the Wingate Foundation had donated $25 million in support of an art building and endowment. Over the past three years, however, the school and foundation pivoted from a one-time gift to the multi-tiered plan unveiled last week. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Daniel Carew. September is Hunger Action Month, and Arkansas ranks second in the nation for food insecurity. According to the Arkansas Food Bank, one out of every five Arkansans struggles to provide enough food for families. Bobby McDaniel, Director of Development at the Arkansas Hunger Relief Alliance, says food insecurity isn't just about the price of food. Food insecurity is not only when you think about someone not having food in their home, it is the actual... Um, it, it deals with the access to healthy foods as well. When we talk about food insecurity is can they purchase produce? Can they purchase beef? You know, we can, unfortunately, the unhealthy food is cheaper. A major problem escalating food insecurity in Arkansas, McDaniel says, is a large number of food deserts or areas where fresh produce is limited or impossible to find. Ryan Miller of the Arkansas Food Bank says food deserts can also exist in rural areas where people have to drive miles to find fresh produce. We were in the Delta um, a couple weeks ago and at our um, Delta branch and just I just looked at the map and I was like, where's the next closest grocery store? And it was about 20 minutes away and it was a bait and tackle shop. So, yes, it has food there, but it's not even like Bobby mentioned, it's not necessarily even the healthiest food um, that is that is accessible. Over 17 percent of Arkansans are facing some level of hunger and nearly 24 percent of children have limited access to adequate food. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, Northwest Arkansas Retirement Community, catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of activities, living options, plus outdoor spaces, including access to city trails. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more information. Arkansas soccer now 5-1-1 after a win last night at Grand Canyon and a 3-3 tie Thursday night at number 13 Brigham Young. The Razorbacks will open SEC play at Mississippi State Friday night. Arkansas volleyball off to a fine start. They're 7-1. This weekend, the Razorbacks didn't drop a set while defeating Arkansas Little Rock, Florida International, and previously undefeated Colorado. Up next is the Arkansas Challenge in Barnhill Arena Thursday and Friday nights. And the Arkansas Razorback football team back in the Associated Press Top 10 after this weekend's win over South Carolina. Arkansas will host Missouri State in Reynolds Razorback Stadium Saturday night, marking the first time the team has played as a top 10 squad in their home stadium in a decade. It turns out that the Arctic is sort of the mirror to the earth. The, uh, all the computer climate models, all the, uh, all the theories predict that whatever's going to happen to the rest of the earth will happen first and to the greatest extent in the Arctic. This is Ozarks at Large. Happy Monday to you, Randy Dixon. Thank you. Same to you, Kyle. Randy is with the Pryor Center for 
Arkansas Oral and Visual History. What did we just hear? Well, that was actually an interview from 25 years ago. I can't believe it's been 25 years. But that was a scientist with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Um, 25 years ago, I went to Barrow, Alaska. You cannot get much... No, that is the highest point in yeah. in America. Yeah. Um, it's about 350 miles above the Arctic Circle. And we went in January, and it was cold. <laughs> but, all right, you think about it, uh, 25 years ago, um, I, I took our chief meteorologist, Ned Permy, up to do a series of reports on what was new at the time, global warming. And uh, like I said, we went up in January. It was really cold. Well, we get off the plane, get in the car, and this was the forecast that we heard on the radio. Elsewhere, mainly north winds, 10 to 20 miles per hour. Temperatures falling to between 10 and 20 below. Tonight, continued quite windy in Attigan Pass with blowing snow and wind chills to 80 below. You know, the first few seconds you go, well, okay, that's cold. But then you hear about the blowing snow and the wind chills. You go, oh. Oh, that's 80 deadly. below. Yeah, that's dead. Yeah, and I'm thinking this, why are we here? Um, <laughs> it was your idea, though, right? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. Um, so anyway, we, we get up there and uh, we'll get into to some of the challenges we had. But here's just a snippet of an on-camera portion of Ned Permy's report. It's 12 noon, just before sunrise at the Arctic Circle. Wind chill factor, I can't describe it, 60 below zero. And everything behind me looks like a big snow field. It's actually water. It's the Arctic Ocean, and I'm standing on it. And you can nine months out of the year. On the ocean. Yeah. Standing on the ocean. At that time, at least, you could do nine months a year. Yes. Yeah, I wow. mean, and the only way you could get there is fly in. You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't go by water because there was no water. It was all, wow. it was all frozen over. But, you know, this being 1997, the idea of global warming was fairly new. Um, so we wanted to show, you know, the work and the research that was going on up there um, and also how what their studies would affect the, uh, the weather down here in Arkansas. I talked to Ned last week and asked him to, to just kind of reflect on the significance of that trip and that series of reports. The word was out that the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration was beginning to test environmental and climate change. Um, and the one place that they were looking to test this was in the Arctic regions, because that's in the Arctic regions, that's where you really start to see if there's a shift or a change in ice production, ice manufacturing, whatever you will, um, whether there's change from year to year in the ice belt in the Arctic Circle area. It's not a trip you forget, is it? Oh, no. <laughs> no. So, so how long were you there? We were there uh, just about a week. But, you know, it took pretty much two days of travel sure. to get there because sure. we had to fly Little Rock, uh, I believe it was to Denver, to Seattle, to Anchorage, to Juneau, and then a small plane up to Barrow. So it was, it was quite a trek. So when you are there, after you've arrived there, what do you do? Well... First of all, we, we got checked into the only hotel, which was called the Top of the World Hotel. And um, I had been in contact with these NOAA weather people. They had two stations up there, but we spent the day at the, the main weather bureau in Barrow with the station chief, and his name was Dan uh, Enders. And uh, here he is gathering atmospheric samples that they would they would collect every day and ended up back then sending them off to be tested. What we're going to do here is open these bottles under a vacuum and suck in some air, and then we send it off to our lab in Boulder 
and they analyze it for carbon dioxide, which is important for the greenhouse effect. And the greenhouse effect is what may determine how, how hot the temperatures get. Um, it's sort of like throwing an extra blanket on your bed at night to stay warm. Again, this is from work you did 25 years ago, 1997. You're talking about climate change and uh, global warming. And you're talking to this fellow who works for NOAA. Right. And so we wanted to know um, what he was doing there and what kind of effects it, it might have in the future. In the early 70s, it was decided that with all the increasing carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the increasing methane and the increasing freons, that something needed to be done to measure how these levels were changing. And the Arctic is an ideal place to measure these changes. Um, a lot of the computer programmers decided that the Arctic was like a mirror to the rest of the uh, world as far as climate. What happens to the rest of the world will happen here first and to the largest extent. Um, increased carbon dioxide will lead to an increase in the greenhouse effect, which is the warming because the carbon dioxide gets into the atmosphere and builds up. It lets the sunlight come in and warm the earth up, but it will not let the heat escape back out. And that warms up the atmosphere, which warms up the earth, melts the ice cap, will have rising sea levels. Um, plants will probably end up growing further north than they used to. Um, Arkansas probably won't be able to grow the kind of crops they grow now. What's, cotton's big there. Cotton may end up being grown in Kansas and Michigan. Um, Arkansas may end up being in the banana belt if these, if these increases happen the way some people predict. I know that f in preparing this week's Prior Center Profiles for us, Randy Dixon, you called back that station in Barrow, where you were 25 years ago. Yes. Um, now, Dan has retired, but I did talk to the current station chief. His name is Brian Thomas. And so I wanted him to kind of update me on uh, what's happened since we were there 25 years ago. The changes are accelerating in that um, Back when you spoke to Dan, there was still a lot of speculation about what climate change was going to be like, right? And what what the science was pointing toward as possible consequences or possible conditions that would be caused by what we're observing if the trends were to continue. And um, what what we're noticing now is that um, you know, this is, this is in it. We're in it, right? This is happening now. The, the changes that were sort of predicted or, or considered to be likely, um, they're now actually, they're happening, right? Um, we have much reduced sea ice, and when we have less sea ice, then we have more ocean heating, Right? Uh, and then this is a positive feedback where the warmer ocean then has less ice in it. And so then it warms faster. And so uh, warmer ocean, more energy in the ocean then gives more energy to the atmosphere. So you have more energy in the ocean for storms, more energy in the atmosphere for storms. In general, we have more erosion on the coastlines here in, in Alaskan Arctic than we have in the past. So there's, there's definitely things that we can see happening right now. So you've seen it firsthand. We do, and we've seen it, we've seen it now for years, right? This is not a new thing. This is something that, um, that we've been seeing, um, and it's not, it's not something that, is very surprising in terms of um, the science pointed toward it, but um, but living it, you know, and, and, and seeing it happen is is different. 1997, 25 years ago, was before an inconvenient truth that fell oh, by uh, Al Gore. Yeah, almost 15 years. Wow. So it came out almost 10 years ago, but we were there long before that. So um, 
when it came out, it well, have you seen it? I have. I saw it when it came out, but I haven't seen it since. It's pretty scary. Yeah. So, um, well, let's just listen to a clip from, you know, Al Gore it won an Academy Award, and here's, here's a little bit from An Inconvenient Truth. The Arctic is experiencing faster melting. If this were to go, sea level worldwide would go up 20 feet. This is what would happen in Florida, around Shanghai, home to 40 million people. The area around Calcutta, 60 million. Here's Manhattan, the World Trade Center. So now the the vice president is still leading this cause. Uh, he's formed a nonprofit group called the Climate Reality Project. Um, it, it urges immediate action to reverse what it calls, you know, global crisis. Um, I, I talked to um, Al Gore's chief of staff uh, last week, and she was she was very nice. She tried to hook me up with Al Gore. And uh, he was not available because of the the bill that was just signed, oh, or the act, right. the, the the reduction act, and uh, inflation reduction. And uh, they were very busy working on that. And there's some sort of worldwide symposium. She also tried to get me hooked up with the president and CEO of the Climate Reality Project, and she wasn't available. But um, I did talk to the other side course, to be balanced yes. uh, and fair. But, you know, there are scientists out there that um, believe that this climate change isn't necessarily all man-made and uh, is reversible. Uh, I talked to uh, Dr. David Legates, who is a retired professor at the University of Delaware and is a research fellow at the Independent Institute. And I asked him about what he thought of Gore's organization and specifically that documentary, An Inconvenient Truth. Well, I, I follow it very little, um, given the fact that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not, in my view, really science. It's more uh, political science, if you will. And so they're, they've got an agenda to set, and it's not to get the best science on the ground. Uh, but Ian Vegan Truth demonstrated that, that it wasn't about science. It was about scaring people into action. Are you saying it's a lot of hype? Uh, yeah, that's a polite way of putting it, yeah. Dr. Legates has firm opinions. Yes, he does. And certainly ones that the Climate Project people would strongly disagree with. And we should point out the majority of climate scientists yes. would disagree with. Yes. Yes. Uh, but Legates was part of the Trump administration uh, as far as climate. He, he was one of the advisors, and he contributed to a book uh, titled Hot Talk, Cold Science, Global Warming's Unfinished Debate. Uh, so I then posed this question to Dr. Legates about scientists uh, who say we're running out of time. So a lot of scientists are saying, you know, we're reaching a point of no return and it's dire. And are, are they crying wolf? Uh, my argument is I think they are. Um, I don't see dramatic climate change. I mean, we look at hurricanes, you look at tornadoes, you look at a number of things. And once you account for the changing observational bias, you get that there's lots of variability, uh, but no long-term trends. Uh, same with heat waves, same, you know. And so the, the issue becomes that uh, we have lots of variability in climate. We go through warm periods, cold periods, wet periods, dry periods. Um, but nevertheless, that climate varies. Uh, we happen to be in a warmer period right now, uh, in part due, as I said, to human activity through land use change, through carbon dioxide uh, effects, but also uh, the sun has become a little more intense. And so it's part natural, part human-induced, uh, but not disastrous and not heading towards this somehow magic tipping point that we get to a place where we get a runaway fireball earth. All right, Dr. Legates uh, was at the University of Delaware. We've heard from him. Let's go back to Barrow, Alaska, where NOAA scientist Brian Thomas is, and you talked to him. Yes, um, and he, he talked about, you know, the natural weather cycles uh, and trends, and this is what he had to say. So our data doesn't show 
a cycle. Um, our data shows a trend that has been happening for the last 49 years since we've been observing it here. Mm-hmm. Um, and the trend is in one direction, right? There's, there's no cycle. So on, on a longer time scale, you know, are, are there cycles in, in the Earth system? Yes, but the question is whether the changes that we're observing are part of that longer cycle or if they're um, effects that are happening on a shorter cycle because of human activity. I want to go back 25 years now because I want to know okay. a little bit more about your experiences okay. in Alaska. Oh, yeah. It, it was, it was, I guess, a trip of a lifetime. Yeah. Now, um, I, so I've been to Iceland. Yes. Which is south of Barrow, right? Yep. Yep. Just only a little part of northern Iceland is above the Arctic Circle. Right. And I went in the summer when it never got dark. You're there in January in Barrow. Did it, did you ever see light? Well, uh, a little bit. It was light about two hours a day, but it was like dusk. And I had this horrible uh, experience on the flight from Juneau to Barrow. There was a a pilot on the plane. Uh, not flying it, but was a passenger. And um, he started talking to us about what we were doing because he saw the TV gear. And uh, I told him we were going up to do some television reports. And he said, well, good luck with that because it's dark 24 hours a day up there right now. And it scared me to death that we were going to spend a week in total darkness and, I mean, my career flashed before my eyes because I didn't think we would get much video. So you're not scared of the dark. You're scared of spending a lot of KATV's money to go up and not get— And not get much of anything. I got you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, understand. our lights could not— Penetrate. I <laughs> yeah, the tundra. I got you. Or, you know, the, the, the Arctic Ocean that had frozen over. Fortunately, it, it was light about two hours a day— <laughs> And um, but it never got completely light. It was sort of like dusk mm-hmm. uh, for that two hours. But I talked to Ned, and he sort of describes our initial experience there. Just such a vast expanse up there in that part of the world. People just don't realize how barren it is, especially in the winter time. All right. So that's a conversation you had with Ned Permi recently. last week. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So um, while we were there, we also wanted to, to kind of make it personal and find out what it was like to live there, because there are several thousand people who, who live in the town. So we got together with a group of people in one of the few local restaurants. By the way, it was called Arctic Pizza. And um, <laughs> Ned talked to them about, you know, life there and then how they cope with the darkness. Tell me some of the fun things that you all do here. I mean, darkness, and then I guess uh, in the summertime, what are some of the great things you do during dark? And, and oh. so, anybody can jump in. I'll swing the mic. <laughs> well, the fun thing is to meet people like this. <laughs> you never know who you're going to meet here, but uh, summertime, a phenomenal amount of birds come up to the to the tundra to nest, and it's that's that's pretty interesting. And also in the spring and fall, there's whaling that happens here, and that's also very exciting. How about in the wintertime? The winter, there's skiing. It's absolutely beautiful to watch the ocean freeze and the ice come and go and the light and the different phenomena, the northern lights and the storms, <laughs> and lots of socializing and eating. We were there just in time for one of the big, big activities, and um, I asked Ned to, to kind of pick up that story. The citizens up there, they get very excited when the sun starts to come back, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah, they do. And they were celebrating at the time we were up there by having, I think, what they called Race for the Sun. Yeah. Uh, it, it was like a big 5K race. And I think everybody in town got involved in it one way or the other. And it was 20 below zero. It, it was. It was. Wow. Um, yeah, so. we're, we're so we go up there not expecting to cover a 5K race. <laughs> I think that's legit. That, you wouldn't, that wouldn't be on your radar. Yeah. And so we're trying to figure out, all right, it's 40 below or 20 below. You know, when when you've got those kind of numbers, it doesn't really matter. Um, 
you so I've got in the SUV and our photographer Larry Potter got in the back and opened up the back and we started shooting video at the, the racers and he actually did an impromptu interview with one of them out the back of the car. Why in the world do you do something like this? Slow down, Randy. Well. I don't know if you're a runner. I guess you have to run when you can. And for the most part, it's not so bad. My feet get kind of cold, and so do my hands. I love this guy. He's like, ah, it's fine. Well, if my hands get cold, my, my feet, feet get, get cold. cold. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, horrible. he was bundled up. They were all bundled up. Have to, I mean, you have to be. Yes. It's dangerous if you're not. Right. Right. Okay. Um, but I remember the signs all over town that said, beware of polar bears. And it says, uh, do not leave children unattended. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, they're just polar bears wandering around. They were telling me that a guy had gone out on a on an ice, you know, what are they called? Flow, uh, Jet ski type oh. thing. Uh, but That sounds horrible. Well, but he had gone out and... Um, they never heard from him again. They they found his jet ski and they assumed oh that a polar bear God. had chased okay. him down and grabbed him off of it. Oh my! Yeah, God, I never want to go to this place. Yeah, a couple other little trivial things. Uh, Liquor is outlawed there. Oh, I'm out. I, the polar bears had me reconsidering, but if liquor <laughs> is outlawed, I am not going to Barrow, yeah. Alaska. And there's the aurora borealis. Now that. Did you see the Northern Lights? Yes. Oh and goodness. we, um, well, I would always travel with my Nikon. And, you know, 25 years ago, I was shooting film. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there weren't digital cameras. And, uh, yeah, that which is a whole other problem we ran into because you would go out in that kind of weather and, sud- you know, immediately your batteries would go dead. Mm-hmm. So it, I guess it didn't really matter that it was only light two hours a day. We could only shoot for about 30 minutes, and we'd have to recharge our batteries. But I really wanted a picture of the Aurora Borealis, which, way. yeah, and, you know, you take a time exposure. And But we also wanted to get video. Well, what, and this was my idea, I'll admit it, it was really stupid, but... Ned will tell the story about what we did our last night there. What we wanted to do was to go out and, um, and, and see the Aurora Borealis firsthand ourselves. And so we left the hotel not really thinking about the ramifications of it, but we left at night and we began driving to get away from the lights of town so that we could see it really, really well. And so we kept driving and driving and driving. And I don't know, we probably didn't go that many miles. But the thing is, we were just in such an abandoned wasteland area. And like you said, signs out there, beware of polar bears. Well, what I realized, and I remember that I was the one that said this, while you and our photographer, Larry Potter were in the car with me and we were driving away from town and it was like 60 below zero. And we got to the point where we could see the Northern lights, the Aurora Borealis really well. And we wanted to stop the car and begin to film and to photograph. But I realized if you shut this car off, and it does not start again, we're dead. Mm-hmm. I really believe that we could have, that could have been our demise. I have to say, Randy Dixon, I'm <laughs> glad that Ned Purdy knew you at that stage in your career where you could convince him to go do these things. I'm glad I know you at this stage when you yeah. just come to my studio. When it, well, and I'll say to heck with it. I'll <laughs> stay home and watch it on TV. Yeah. Wow. But, what a, but I got a great picture. There you go. And, um, yeah, it ended up being a really great trip and a great series of reports. It was very informative, and, and I, not to brag, but I think it was kind of cutting edge to do it back then. Well, yeah, so 
you would Ned do his forecast live from there? Would no. You use a sound? Okay, so you just recorded everything and brought it back. Right. Okay. Right, but and we did several weather-related things over the gotcha. years. We we studied lightning. We went out to New Mexico. Uh, we, we studied wind at uh, I think Texas Tech. So we, okay, Ned did a lot of uh, cool. things other than stand in front of a chroma key wall. I like it. I like it. Thanks so much for sharing this. No, I loved it. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks for letting me, you know, take a stroll down memory lane. This is better than a slideshow, i got to tell you. <laughs> Randy Dixon is with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. You'll be back next week. Yes, sir. Best Friends Animal Society, in partnership with Downtown Rogers, presents the first-ever Best Friends Animal Society Pup Crawl, September 24th. A pub crawl with a purpose, ticket sales benefit the Best Friends Pet Resource Center coming soon to Northwest Arkansas. One well-behaved dog welcome per ticket. For information, search Best Friends Animal Society on Eventbrite. This is Ozarks at Large. With me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio is Ozarks at Large's reporter who reports on growth and change in the region, Anna Pope. Hello, Anna. Hello. How are you? I'm great. You've been with us for a few months now. Yes. Uh, so it started here on June 1st, and now it's, it's September. So you've gotten to know Northwest Arkansas mm-hmm. and the Arkansas River Valley a little bit better? A little bit, yes. What do you think? Uh, I, I'm still curious. I, you know, that's for me. I'm wanting to look into some of these smaller towns and to see, you know, if some of them um, – I love those little anecdotal stories and to hear people's point of view. And also, you know, we talked earlier about some small towns that possibly aren't there anymore that might not even be on the map. And I'm extraordinarily interested in those towns to see, you know, growth is happening all around us. And there's some towns that are, you know, shrinking now, but um, also looking back and trying to, you know, learn about those towns and you know, see, compare and contrast and everything along those lines. There are towns that I guess if you've lived around here for a long time, you remember. Gobbler. Carrollton still has a road sign when you drive through Carroll County. Arkawana is long gone. Mm-hmm. So you're you're trying to find out more about these places that might not have signs or be on the map? That's right. Yeah. So it, that might not be that somebody might know that's there. Or you'll there's stop in the road or you'll see this one community building that's left. And you're like, why is there a community building? There's not a road sign here. There's nothing. Um, you look down on your maps and there's nothing there, you know, or or it could have been even, you know, consolidated into another part. And but it used to be its own entity. And so um, or its own. Uh, place. So just trying to figure those out and wanting to hear from people and, uh, you know, kind of get their point of view on different things that's going on in the state right now. So if someone knows something about, say, Snow or Southlet Hill. Where are these places, <laughs> Kyle? Snow. Of co- so Snow is halfway between Summit and Flippin. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're taking that highway, You'll go through snow. Okay. And South Lead Hill, of course, is south of Lead Hill. There you go. <laughs> how, how can people connect with you to, to tell the stories about these towns that may or may not be disappearing? Well, there's a way that they can either call into the station or we have connect questions on our KUAF Connects line um, on our KUAF app. Um, so people can go in and answer some of these questions and I will be reaching back out to them uh, just to kind of get their story and to spark a conversation. Uh, nothing crazy off the bat, but then they can also come in and call to the station um, just to t- just drop in and Tell us their story, or you can leave a message on the Connects line and just um, talk however long you want to. So, so if you know something about Four Sisters or Monkey Run, call me, <laughs> call us. We want to hear from you. Four Sisters and Monkey Run. Five seven five six five seven seven. That's a four seven nine number. And this will we're going to extend this into Oklahoma and Missouri, right? Sure. Why yeah. not? Yeah. Wherever our coverage goes, we want to hear from you. You know we. Um, definitely we're here to serve the, everybody and we want to hear from you and that's, that's all I got. Yeah. All right. So the connects <laughs> questions are on the app. Yes. And that's free for download and the connects line where you can leave us a message is four seven nine five seven five six five seven seven. Yes. 
please do. Please call. If you know any place that's, um, you know, that you see is going away or have happening. I mean, there's a lot of reports. There's has been reports talking about rural towns and small areas fading for some time now. And um, but just with the tremendous growth in northwest Arkansas, it's really easy to get lost in that than also looking at other areas on the map. I grew up in a small town called Lakeview. Mm-hmm. But before it was Lakeview, <clears throat> there was a town called Amos. There you go. And it's gone. The Amos school building is still, well, it was there. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It may have fallen down. Obviously, I'm fascinated with this topic, too. So I can't wait to hear what stories are shared with you. Well, I'm so glad to be able to sit here and talk with you, especially on Ozarks at Large. And, you know, people can call in and talk to me. Thank you, Anna Pope. Thank you. This is Ozarks at Large. Roby Brock, our partner with Talk Business and Politics, is never accused of loafing. Along with the digital work with Talk Business and Politics and the weekly television show of the same name, Roby will be the new host beginning Sunday of Capital View, an all-politics program that will be seen on five television stations in the state. He'll continue to host Talk Business and Politics on three additional stations. Roby, who was the first host of Capital View when it began in 2013, is with me now. Roby, thanks for taking a few minutes to talk with us. Always good to be with you and your listeners, Kyle. All right, let's talk about Capital View. It is an all-politics program. You're going to be resuming hosting duties as we hit a campaign season in high gear. What can we expect to see over the next few weeks? Well, that's the best time to be <laughs> right. hosting a political show. Uh, that in a legislative session right after it. Um, what can you expect? Well, first of all, we will obviously be moving um, a lot of our, I guess what I call political assets over there. Our talk business and politics hinders college polling will come out first through this vehicle. We've got uh, a cast of characters from John Brummett to Rex Nelson to Shane Broadway and many others uh, who uh, kind of make up some of our analysts and roundtables. They will be there with us as well. And then just programming wise, I mean, we will be interviewing uh, quite a few of the political candidates uh, where, as you mentioned, we're headed into the November election cycle. So it's time to start profiling and having some hard Q&A questions and answers discussions with some of these uh, folks that are running for Congress and statewide office and, and the legislature. Does this mean anything different for the other television show, which is Talk Business and Politics? Well, I am going to kind of put a little bit of a wall up between the two of them. Um, it won't be super obvious to people, but um, but we will deal with a lot more pure politics in the Capital View show. So we'll interview newsmakers in the political scene. We will obviously do that in talk business and politics, too. But there will be some times where we'll probably go um, with some issues with Capital View that I wouldn't necessarily say are at the intersection of business and politics. They might just be a little bit more pure politics. You can imagine, you know, some of the culture war debates that we have in the state legislature will probably find their way more on Capital View than talk business and politics. And I still want to be true to our business brand over there. So we'll be interviewing a lot of business newsmakers with talk business and politics. And I'll probably do a little bit more from a policy perspective. So when the issues that we're dealing with have a ramification on business and commerce, I think you'll find more of those interviews that talk business and politics. They, too, will bleed over to Capital View from time to time. So there'll be two different programs. Occasionally, there'll be some guests that will cross over. Um, If I sit down and interview a governor, for instance, that's probably going to be on both shows. Some of our political polling will find its way into both shows. So um, so they'll, they'll both be worth watching because there'll be some different guests on both shows. What does this mean for you physically? Do you have to record one program <laughs> one place and one the other? Well, luckily, um, because we will be um, operating with the Nexstar Corporation uh, and we will be producing the show mainly out of Little Rock, um, the actual studio that I will be using the sets for both shows are in the same studio and use the same camera. So you just pivot them around 180 degrees and you're on a different set. So uh, physically, it will not be very difficult for me to move from one chair across a room about 
30 feet to another chair. I think I'll be able to handle that. Is this an example that I know that if, if for those of us who produce programs, there can be the thought that uh, sort of a professional fear of missing out, that you can't get all the coverage or talk to all the people you think you should responsibly talk to, not necessarily on both sides of a single issue, but to cover more issues. Was that sort of the the impetus for you here, the, the chance to explore more issues with more time? Well, I definitely think that it was that that is a challenge that we always face. You always wish that you could talk about other subjects and you always wish you could talk longer about some of the subjects that you have. So yeah, to, to be confined to 30 minutes of airtime uh, with one TV show now to be able to do 60 minutes, uh, I think I said 30 seconds, 30 minutes of airtime to be 60 minutes of airtime now with two different shows and being able to kind of address different things through those programs. I'm, I'm super stoked about it. I think it's just going to be more opportunity for more content, uh, more opportunities to have political discussions. And hopefully I bring my brand of fairness to all of that so that it is, you know, civil and, you know, forward thinking in terms of um, helping people understand issues in a deeper level. And um, so I'm looking forward to having 60 minutes of airtime to, to be able to explore a lot of these subjects that are super important to people's lives. I'm curious, do you think you will think of this as one hour of Sunday production that you have to come up with, or are you still going to think of one show and one show? Well, that's an inside baseball question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I'll probably think of it as two shows, to be honest with you. Um I, more than likely, I will think of it that I have been thinking of it that way. I'll have to do something from start to finish with one show. I'll have to do something from start to finish with other shows. Not that I won't tape them interchangeably, but it will. Um, I think because I'm putting some sort of um, specific missions with each show, I think that it will allow me to kind of keep them a little bit more linear in that respect. Finally, as we had closer and closer to election day, what should we voters be looking for? Well, I think now we're going to start seeing the airwaves uh, fill up with a lot of those uh, candidate messages. Your mailboxes are going to start getting full with direct mail pieces. Um, And then I think the other thing to really watch from my perspective is what happens with these uh, ballot initiatives. You've got the three that have been referred by the legislature and uh, two of them in particular have, I think, a lot of controversy surrounding them. And then you've got the recreational marijuana amendment that is before the Supreme Court right now. And I think that we'll have a ruling on that next week, not this week, but next week. Um, And so we'll find out if it stays on the ballot or not pretty soon. Roby Brock will be seen in our part of the state as host of Talk Business and Politics at 9.30 each Sunday morning on Fox 24. Then, as the host of Capital View on KNWA each Sunday at 10.30. Roby, as always, thanks for your time. Good to be with you, Kyle. Mike check, Mike check. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's new underwriting director. KUAF's news and music programming reaches more than 50,000 people each week over the air, online, and through our iOS app. And you could reach our audience with your business or organization by underwriting on KUAF. To learn more about underwriting, email me at ryan at KUAF.com. That's R-Y-A-N at KUAF.com. The current exhibition, A Divided Landscape, at the Momentary, will close later this month. The work explores the landscape of the American West beyond just the familiar mountains, buttes, and vast expanses, examining the people who have, and still do, live there. Beginning tomorrow, performance artist Marilyn Arsom will bring her original site-specific work, Bodies in the Land, influenced by a divided landscape, to the momentary. Boston-based Arsom has been creating and performing live performance art events since the mid-1970s. She's performed her art everywhere from a former Cold War missile base in the U.S. to the grounds of an abandoned tuberculosis sanatorium in Poland to a deserted Russian mining outpost in the Arctic Circle. Last week, we asked her a few questions over Zoom about her work. She says she goes where invited and creates her work based on the surroundings of her area. For her work at the Momentary, she says she traveled here and waited for inspiration, which she says came to her in a sudden burst. It's more of a week of flash. <laughs> like just in time. Um, I was out here for maybe five days, and uh, what I try to do 
in this process where I'm trying to make a work in response to the place is to not come with a preconceived idea. When she came to the region to seek ideas for the show, she considered the land of the Ozarks. She bought a book about the soil of northwest Arkansas that she found at Dixon Street Bookstore, and she spent time in the genealogy wing of the Bentonville Public Library. So I went to the library on Saturday noon, and I was in the genealogical room that they have. I think they have history room, local history room. I'm not sure what they call it. There was 11 volumes of obituaries from Benton County. She says the oldest available obituaries, not written to any specific newspaper formula, are the most interesting. She'll be reading these notices inside the momentary during gallery hours tomorrow through Sunday, a public embrace of people who were once here and may have been forgotten. She says her performance art, always different depending on where she is situated, is ephemeral and she leans into the experimental and the unexpected. Um, And it is one of the advantages of doing ephemeral work, that it disappears, and, um, you know, people's memories of it may last, they may change, they may also disappear, but it gives a kind of um, flexibility that lets you make mistakes and experiment, and it's gone. (laughs) Marilyn Arsom will be presenting her Bodies in the Land in the galleries at the Momentary tomorrow through Sunday during regular gallery hours. You can learn more at themomentary.org. Support for KUAF comes from Walton Arts Center, presenting Grammy-winning artists Herb Alpert and Lanny Hall, September 15th. Herb Alpert is an American trumpeter who was the frontman of the Tijuana Brass Project, and his wife, Lanny Hall, was the lead singer of the classic Brazil 66 recordings, Mas Que Nada, Fool on the Hill, Going Out of My Head, and Day Tripper. Tickets at waltonartscenter.org. KUAF is supported by Pack Rat Outdoor Center in Fayetteville, serving Northwest Arkansas since 1973 with backcountry and urban footwear, clothing, equipment, and more. Pack Rat is dedicated to conservation and waste reduction. PackRatOC.com for online shopping, shipping, or curbside pickup. The Alzheimer's Association Walk to End Alzheimer's will be in Rogers Saturday at Pinnacle Heights Apartments. That day, participants may honor those affected by Alzheimer's with the Promise Garden Ceremony. The colors of the Promise Garden flowers represent people's connection to Alzheimer's and their personal reasons to end the disease. More than 6 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's. More than 11 million family members and friends provide care to people living with Alzheimer's and other dementias. In Arkansas, there are more than 58,000 people living with the disease and 93,000 caregivers. To register and learn more, you can visit act.alz.org slash nwawalk. Public service at the center of public radio, from the journalism that keeps you informed about events going on around the world to the Community Spotlight series and Ozarks at Large, keeping you connected with your community. KUAF provides a public service to more than 55,000 people each week. And we're only able to provide this because of the support of those who can give. Your gift helps keep those important programs on the air for all of us, even those who can't afford to support it at this time. You can hit the buttons to support us at supportkuaf.com. So far this month, full fundraising month, more than $18,000 raised so far. Thank you. This is 91.3 KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Lowell. Timothy Dennis produced today's show inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors this Monday included Daniel Carruth and Randy Dixon. Thanks as well to Anna Pope and Roby Brock from Talk Business and Politics for being with us on the show today. We will have another brand new show for you tomorrow at noon and 7, plus the Ozarks at Large podcast. Oh, I am stepping away for the rest of the week. Timothy Dennis and Matthew Moore will bring you the shows every day throughout the rest of the week. Thank you so much for your continued attention and support. Our theme written and performed by Daryl Sean from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums.